Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 35. I'm Mike Uptegraft. And I'm Joshua Klein. Uh, we've been uh, excited about our new launch for the second term of our Mortis and Tenon apprenticeship program. Yeah. Uh, we had our first uh, term end. It's, it's, it's an eight-week term, so we had the first term end uh, what was it, a week and a half ago or whatever it yeah, was? Yeah, a couple weeks now. Yeah, and um, so that ended, and it was great to hear the students' feedback uh, about the program, what they went through with that whole thing. Um, and then, you know, a week later, seven days later, we opened registration for Term 2, uh, which took off. Um, it was filled up the first time uh, to fill our slots. It took us two days. And then this time, uh, we actually ended up expanding to fill it more yeah, but more the same number time. of slots filled up in four hours so yeah. uh, we still have a few slots available now because we expanded the class to be a little bit bigger um, so as of this recording <laughs> mm-hmm. we have a few slots um, so if you hear this uh, you can check and see at, at our website you can see what we're doing and see what the program is all about and if you miss out on this time uh, we're going to be running this program uh, quarterly so uh, yeah it's a, it's a great uh, kind of mix of online education but there's group camaraderie and um so everybody's in their shops together yeah it's it's been really cool to see you know when we were putting it together we you know some aspects of the program we weren't quite sure how it would work some parts are are definitely more challenging some parts are um you know we we warned the students in advance that they were coming and then to see it all come together to see these students you know it, at times out in the woods with axes felling trees uh yeah so cool and then you know they they would share their videos of of these exercises in the um, apprenticeship program forum and <laughs> it's so cool uh some of them were really creative with it um one student did a time lapse video uh, of her process of cutting down the tree and it's just super fun um we we really have uh I feel like connected with these students and, uh, and they're staying in, they're keeping in touch with each other too, uh, which is great. Um, it's kind of a big goal of the program was to have these real life connections, uh, arise. Uh, so we're not just all, you know, sitting and posting on our, in our separate locations. We want, uh, real friendships to grow through this program. So, uh, we are really looking forward to, uh, the next term and, uh, it's it's funny uh, when you know we talk about digital media and all these different areas that we have our fingers in, <laughs> and it wasn't so long ago that uh, Joshua, you first got a smartphone, and it was just for this business. Well, I say it wasn't so long ago; it was eons ago. And uh, when you talk in about digital, digital technology time, <laughs> uh, so Joshua got an iPhone uh, years ago because of. Uh, at that time, he was uh, still active. The business was still active on social media, and you, well, basically, you wanted to get going on on Instagram. Yeah, right? I didn't know. I didn't know anything about social media, so I said I should probably get a, <clears throat> get a smartphone, smartphone so I can. Because that's what you do. I think you have to have a smartphone to use Instagram or something. Yeah, that's, right. So I had to look that up and buy one of those things. Uh, yeah, and so. and that phone um, has has seen some things. It's been through some some adventures. And I've and, dropped it. Three times a day, yeah, for however five and I think years. some of the dropping eventually, you know, the vibrate function, it just gets louder and louder. And I think something rattled loose. So now, when when that phone would sit on the windowsill and it would ring or buzz, it was like terrifying. It sounded like a distant bugle or something, uh, and yep. it had a crack screen and all that, yeah. right? So yep. it, it had somewhere. It was uh, an earlier iPhone, and uh, Joshua has decided. Uh, to to upgrade that phone, and so he got one of these newer ones with the you know extraordinarily fancy cameras. If if anyone listening has a a new phone, you're laughing at us right now because we have our our ancient you know mid twenty teens digital technology going on. But uh, those new phones are pretty amazing in what they can do. So he's been. Um, He's been testing out the camera. Yeah, all it's, it's kind of cool. It's looking been, at stuff. Well, I mean, I think the thing I've been excited I've been taking pictures of um, just stuff around the shop. We have antiques all around and, and tools and stuff, and I've been taking pictures of it. Uh, I'm pretty impressed with what I've seen. I was actually showing Mike the other day. 
you know, what we talk a lot about um, studying antique furniture, it's really important to get uh, certain kinds of lighting and be able to get up close and and um, use the, the camera as a study tool. Right. Um, so you can stand there and look at something. But sometimes the, the process of doing photography, of taking pictures, actually um, uh, discloses or shows you different layers of things you never noticed before. Right. Um, and so you can do that with lighting, but also, again, just the process of taking pictures, just deciding to look up close at something uh, really shows you something. So I've been taking this this new uh, camera on my new iPhone and taking pictures. And it's been interesting because it's it's cool to see this new technology being able to uh, discover uh, historic craft, you know, tool marks and stuff, because I'm sitting there looking at this piece in the shadows it's mm-hmm. in it's dark i can't really see much and i hold my my new phone up to the thing and it looks like it's evenly daylit yeah and all those tool marks are there <laughs> so there's something some kind of magic that they put into yeah. it i'm not, yeah <laughs> I'm they, not they sure use what it lidar is. to to scan for distances so the the focus is perfect and yeah. the lens really so uh, it's interesting in to be able to take some you know you know a newfangled pocket device and be able to uh hold that up to a historic artifact and be able to see more information coming out of it than you would uh, be able to, that you would necessarily pick up on sitting in the room. Now, right. once you take the picture, you look back and you go, oh yeah, oh, sure yeah. enough, it was there it there. is. Yeah. But it's just drawing attention to different things. Um, and I think any good technology should do that, should draw our attention to more aspects of the world around us. I think that's a, that's a good use of technology. So I've been excited about that because there's so much to explore. And everything we do is about exploring different facets of the world through craft. Um, and so here's you know one more one more device that can help us uh, peel back one more layer. So yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, a photograph does reframe your perspective on a scene that maybe you've seen every day, and uh, even videos can do a similar thing. And so. Um, these are all mediums that we are always looking to uh, explore and use in uh, the study of old furniture and hand tool woodworking. So, yeah, uh, maybe more to come on that front. So that's uh, as funny as that sounds. It sort of inspired us to be uh, again thinking afresh about this idea that that we've talked about that craft is a bottomless pursuit right or craft as a bottomless pursuit and that when you start in in on a craft you end up realizing that you you kind of get down these rabbit trails and it's it's a slippery slope man mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you get started yeah. and you go i want to learn how to you know build a you know a, a shoe cubby for my kids right Watch out! Yeah, because as soon as you start Buy doing a that, you, tools. well, I just you know I don't really want to get a whole power tool set up. I'll just get a handsaw, or you start going down this this path, and you realize, oh, you know, it'd be cool is if I had this, you know, uh, got into blacksmithing and then made like a little latch for this little door, mm-hmm. for, and all of a sudden you realize that wow, th- this is such a huge craft world, and the the deeper I get into it, the deeper I want to go. Yeah. Um, and uh, I recently had an experience that there was a, a very experienced boat builder uh, by the name of Lance Lee, who stopped by the shop the other day. Um, and yeah, he was, I missed I missed their visit because they they dropped by after I had gone home already. Yeah, but uh, um, yeah, Lance is a, a legend. He he started the apprentice shop up here, and uh, he's really well known in in uh, traditional boat building circles. Yeah, so it was great to visit with Lance and get to um, hear some of his stories about Bill Copperthwaite and a good friend of his and other things. Um, And he asked me an interesting question, um, actually several interesting questions. But one of them, he asked, um, we were talking about Mortis and Tenon and what we're doing, and he said, um, what do you guys feel like you lack or what do you need to be able to do your work better? I thought that was such one of those out of the blue, interesting questions. Like, what is he getting at here? Incisive questions. And it's interesting because I, you know, we're able to keep going, and we have a lot ahead of us and stuff. The only only thing I could think of is, I told him I wish I had twenty four more hours in a day. I wish I had a total of forty eight because there's Mm -hmm. so much I want to do. But the day every the end of the day every day gets dark, (laughs) right? And I get tired, and. I feel like the sense that I want to have more time to pursue 
all of the possibilities that are before me each day. So that's kind of what we've thought about that craft is a bottomless pursuit. And, you know, when you get really interested, you just realize, oh man, it's bedtime again. And I still didn't get to do all the stuff I wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is interesting because we're often asked, um, when it comes to the magazine, like, oh, do you guys, you guys still have ideas? Like you, you're up to, you know, what, what have been, what are we up to? 120, 130 articles, Mm -hmm. something like that, that have been published in the magazine so far. And we've done blog posts and blog series and, uh, you know, people are asking, boy, are you starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel? Are you having trouble, you know, tracking down <laughs> new ideas? And where our response is always like, ah, uh, you know, like, no, not at all. It's, yeah. it's actually overwhelming at times how each article we publish and each author we interact with and each rabbit trail that we chase down in our writing uh, seems to lead to five different possibilities or more sometimes yeah. i think we could easily go quarterly if we wanted to we just don't want to because we, we want to be able to have time off the computer screens and actually still doing this work and, and researching um but yeah i think it's just it snowballs and i think a lot of life is like that when you're when you are an interested person you will find a lot to be interested in mm-hmm. um and so i think that's something that um that we're just finding more and more that we have antique furniture around the shop here and in my house and Mike has stuff in his house and we got boxes of old tools and yeah that we really need to open up and look over you know, like yeah. closely but we we haven't yet well in the i mean we've looked at them but not in the the depth of uh looking that would be uh revealing of of all that's there so like for example when we do an exam uh study for an upcoming issue of the magazine we have a piece of furniture in we have our big white backdrop up and we have the piece of furniture there with you know big lights on it and we're taking pictures now some of these pieces are are objects we've seen several times some of them we live with them (laughs) a few of them right um and so we're we know the objects well enough but when mike and i sit there looking at this piece and we say okay for the next hour or two we're going to photograph it measure it study it it is it's hilarious because we'll be on our hands and knees all excited with multiple lights going oh what is that why is oh hold on a second well there's writing here never saw that before. okay but if there's a mark over here then why oh well then what's this hole all about you know and we realize that um that when you just take the time to look around a little bit closer it is bottomless. It mm-hmm. is. You, you can't look at something too much. There's always going to be something there that reveals yeah. uh, some further aspect of the story, how this thing came to be. Um, so, you know, every time we go through that process of photographing a piece for an exam, for an issue of m and I, re- I look around and I see all of the, the objects that we haven't spent that time on. And I'm thinking... Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> <That's> just, <laughs> we should just, just take so the time. Oh, wouldn't that be great to study this or to to reproduce that tool or to try this tool or whatever? Mm-hmm. How much would we discover uh, being able to invest that time in doing that kind of research? So, yeah, yeah it's it, it it's it's really funny. Um, and we we hear a lot from our readers, and we love that they uh, send us emails and uh, comments on the blog and stuff like that. Um, someone wrote to us recently, and he was sharing about his his background with with building things, and uh, he said the the nicest thing he's ever made um, out of wood was this um, this mission style uh, bed, headboard, footboard, and rails, and uh, he said. It was usually he's just he's doing construction type work, so he's like framing up walls and stuff. And he built this bed as a gift, and he said he looks back on it and and it's he's pained by the fact that he worked so hard to remove every mark that was his signature in mm-hmm. it. Right? He he uh, after he ran it through all the machines and he you know heavily sanded every surface, and he said I've removed every bit of information there, and uh, and he's like so off it goes and it's it's perfect it's pristine but no one will ever know anything about the process yeah. and 
that to me just reiterates how valuable it is to have this, um, this pre-industrial workmanship with us today that shows us how things were done. And I mean, just decoding all those marks is, is such a, uh, a fun pursuit. And, um, you know, this furniture, like, like Joshua, like you were saying, it's, it's just everywhere. And we all have, uh, you and I in our houses have stuff and it's, it's easy to come by. It's often less expensive than buying new furniture. And it tells us about, about the past. So, uh, those kinds of explorations are, uh, just super valuable. Yeah. And we've been trying to, you know, share everything we can about what we have. Um, but there's just a limitation. There's like thinking about like writing an article on any given piece of furniture or any form of furniture. That's a massive investment of time. Mm -hmm. So we just don't have the time in our day to be able to write an article about every little nook and cranny of research that we want to do, or even a blog post. That's, you know, that those don't just fall out of the sky. They take time to put together. And so I think there's like this interesting sense of uh, this tension of the excitement and, and enthusiasm to pursue more things and, and discover more things and try more things, but then also this reality that you know five thirty comes every day and I got to go home and that's I love going home, but there's this sense of which there's just so much I wish I could do too. So it's like living with this tension of enthusiasm. You, it's good to have enthusiasm, but it also can feel like, oh man, I want to do more. Yeah, you know? it, it reminds me. There's this physicist uh, back in the 30s, I believe he was involved in the Manhattan Project, uh, but before that, he was well known as being a little eccentric. And I feel like it was it was Niels Bohr, but I don't remember for sure who it was. Um, but he was obsessed with his research, and he started experimenting with 26 hour days. So he'd extend his work time longer and then his sleeping time would would just follow that so he was through his work week going in and out of phase with his co-workers basically sometimes as they'd be coming in he'd be getting ready to head home for dinner but because he extended his working time in an, an effort to be more efficient and maximize the time he could spend in the lab uh, he found it just didn't work with you know the regular cycles of sunrise and sunset um <laughs> Well, you know, the, these cycles are here for, for a good reason, and yeah. it's good to, to follow them, but I know we just, ah, there's, there's just so many different directions uh, that we could go. Well, that's, so uh, Lance came with uh, our f- mutual friend, uh, Rivo, and Rivo was saying, I said, you know, if I could have anything, what I would have is more, more hours in the day. And we were talking about that, that idea. And then he said, you know, it's probably good, though. <laughs> it's probably good that there are only 24 hours. You know, if, if you had um, infinite uh, time and resources to do whatever you were interested in, you know, you had ultimate power to do everything you want to do, that right. probably uh, wouldn't turn out good. Yeah. Uh, typically, giving maximum power to any one person yeah. is, turns out Not bad. Not good. Um, yeah. But... We get ourselves into trouble. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's good to be able to be passionate and pursue things and be curious and then sleep on it mm-hmm. and think about it and come, wake up in the morning with an enthusiasm to say, what else can I do today? How much more can I learn? Um, and it's really important, I think, to be able to sleep on it and, and think about uh, something and let it mull over and let um, your your interest in research, say you're looking at chair making and you have this decorative painting stuff you're interested in and then blacksmithing and all those things are kind of overlapping in different ways. And if you just get, if I just get fixated on one thing and just pursue that for a year, I'm going to miss all of the connection points. Yes, so right. being able to unplug from that and, you know, go to sleep and get in, onto the next thing and just have it all overlapping, it's building your your um, understanding of the world uh, in a much broader way all, all at the same time as opposed to just compartmentalized, you know? Yeah, so. exactly. Uh, one of the things actually in that exchange with that reader, um, he was talking about his workshop is uh, he has this combination of, he has his woodworking and then he also uses it, it's his garage for like keeping his family's cars running and for welding. And he said, you know, it's, he's like, I know you guys always say not to be ashamed of your workspaces, but sometimes like the one overwhelms the other and stuff like that. And I, and I was just, I wanted to encourage him and say, well, that's awesome. Like you are finding these, 
these points of connection um, with uh, with craft and stuff that you know working with your hands is an increasingly radical thing in this day and age. Mm-hmm. So however you can work that in, um, you know, however whether it's you know the, honestly a creative process of welding a new exhaust for your car, mm-hmm. <laughs> it is a creative process or uh, woodworking. You know these are becoming increasingly radical. Uh, radical actions in this day and age where uh, we're just expected to to purchase everything we need. Um, so yeah, I think um, I think that finding those different avenues, those different craft avenues in any um, in any subject, any area, any uh, discipline that you're looking at uh, can just lead to uh, this this much broader perspective of what it is to to be creative and be, a little more independent. Um, I think those are valuable things. Yeah. Uh, we um, we talk a lot, and and we have people ask us, uh, um, as I mentioned, like, are you running out of content? Because um, I think one of the things that is it's an accepted and commonplace um, a way of working in publishing is to recycle content mm-hmm. regularly. Like some publications are on something like a nine month cycle, right? Where they look to uh, either um, recycle a topic, recycle a project, recycle a, you know, a look at this, uh, you know, the router and how it's used, um, you know, different things like that, where this content Basically, if you have all the back issues from um, magazines of all different topics and varieties, you know you flip through a few years ago and you're like, oh, well, this is the same thing that now I just got in my mailbox mm-hmm. because even if it's just the same topic from a different author or a different right slightly yeah. different spin on it, but it's the same yeah. idea, same information, same yeah. idea. And so we we recently had um, an author reach out to us with with a pitch on a topic that we had already done an article about, right? And mm. and you you told him... And he wasn't familiar with that particular article, so right. he pitched an article to us about building a lathe, actually. And I said, oh, well, you know, I did build an eighth, a lathe in uh, issue three, um, and so I'm curious if you had some different thing you were going to do with it or if you had, you know, a totally you know, like kind of a, a complementary but different perspective on it or something... And he said, oh, you know, I wasn't aware of that article. Sorry about that. Uh, because basically I said, you know, we don't want to run the same stuff. Right. So we've already done something on a spring pole lathe. Um, so if you have a really different take on it, that's mm-hmm. a very, ends up being a very different article, then we could roll with that. Otherwise, we've already done that. And so he said, oh, you know, good for you guys. That's awesome. <laughs> that's what I want to see is, you know, not just recycling the same stuff over and over, but... He said, "Don't worry about it. No, that's if you guys have done it, that's great." Um, so I think that's the thing that we feel like there's this um, this this sense that there's there's always more to to pursue and to see, and so we don't want to just keep doing the same thing over and over. Mm-hmm. And all of our articles have taken us on rabbit trails, as we already mentioned. Yeah, you know, you can have one author. Uh, quote from some from some book that he read thinking of Joseph a quoting from Tim Ingold or you know uh, right yeah will Lissack uh, connecting with uh, carpenters without borders yeah and then all of a sudden we're like oh wow that's interesting when we and yeah. we start following all this stuff up and it just turns into three more articles yeah when we um, first heard about will's trip to Romania with with the CSF um, the Charpentier sans frontier carpenters without borders, uh, you know, we we're like, wow, that's so cool. I can't believe there's a group in the world that does that kind of thing. Maybe someday we'll get to uh, go tag along. We should do an article about them sometime. That sounds really neat. And um, I talked to Will, and and he was willing to to write for us that article about his trip to Romania with them. And uh, within that, you know, basically one thing led to another, and they ended up... Uh, Coming to Maine, we met the CSF. We worked with them. We ate with them. We uh, watched them work their magic with the pile of logs that were sitting here. And they hewed and raised uh, a structure, which happens to be a blacksmith shop mm-hmm. here, which 
you might think has absolutely not, nothing to do with wood, woodworking, but and it actually, you would be wrong. You would be wrong. It has everything <laughs> to do with woodworking, as so many things do. Like all these these old crafts are completely interconnected. Um, you know, we uh, recently in in our last issue, our friend Nevin Nevin Carling wrote about um, this loom that he found uh, at the Liberty Tool Company. And it's just this this derelict, I don't know how many times I've walked past it and looked at it and gone, mm. huh, well, that's an interesting, you know, number of timbers together. <laughs> I don't know what anyone's any ever going to do with that. Well, Nevin had more vision than I do, and he saw it, and he uh, mulled it over, and he said, I'm going to bring that, I'm going to restore it. And within uh, his restoration, he realized, he began to realize, I'm going to have to learn weaving to really understand this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, not not just to like appreciate it once it's done, but to actually put it together, I'm gonna have to learn how to weave. And to understand the forces involved with weaving, to be right. able to be to inform his structural repairs, he needed to understand what kind of tension was gonna be where mm-hmm. on this thing. It's not just <clears throat> a bunch of sticks, it's a, it's a functional bunch of sticks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so he was, he's very, he very quickly realized um, that this was not just a simple restoration of a wooden frame that looked that that was going to look cool and potentially be practical. He realized that for him to have that understanding of that that job, that task, he had to understand that whole that other craft, that whole other craft pursuit. Uh, so in his article, he um, he talks about the the tie-in with between weaving and timber framing, weaving and blacksmithing. Um, the one direction which where he didn't go, which he he could have if he wanted to add a few thousand more words to his article, mm-hmm. was I mean the growers themselves. Like he yeah. he he briefly touched on spinning, but then you have uh, the the flax growers or the the cotton growers or the the people raising the sheep to be spun. I mean these are all uh, just these uh, further pursuits that people could still. Um, still look at today. Yeah. You know, as you as you get into these crafts, you find that you want to start chasing them further and further back to their source. Yeah. Right? Well, and I was just thinking, so Nevin ended up um, <laughs> making a pair of jeans. The coolest thing. Right. Yeah. So he has this pair of jeans that he had uh, uh, local fibers turned mm-hmm. that he wove together to make denim. Co- cotton grown in Maine. Yeah, Maine cotton. He made his own denim. And then he had uh, some people make him a he, custom he, pair of jeans, He right? dyed the jeans with indigo, also grown in Maine. Yeah. So the loom was built in Maine several hundred years ago. The cotton was grown in Maine. The indigo was grown in Maine. And uh, his friends who who made the jeans for him are also based in Maine. Yeah. So it's, it, I'm just picturing Nevin walking down the street and someone going, oh, those are cool jeans. Where'd you get those? Yeah. And he's like, oh, well, I... Long story. <laughs> yeah, long story. I made them. Oh, you made them? And then, you know, you can just see, like, he's like, well, so I... And then you back all the way up to this first day mm-hmm. and finding this derelict uh, loom, and he says, I should fix that thing. Yeah, I should. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of the, the story that's of a what a lot of this stuff is. Do. And it's a good picture of this this uh, snowballing rabbit trail kind of idea that it's just it just keeps going. And every time it gets further, it just... There are more detours on the rabbit trail, or the mm-hmm. snowball gets bigger. Whatever analogy you want to run with, um, but even I found that with tool making too. Yeah. Um, so in the furniture making I'm doing, a lot of times I want to be able to uh, reproduce pre-industrial process, and so therefore a lot of those uh, steps are really dependent on or informed by uh, pre-industrial tools. So to use even a Victorian analog to it or a modern analog to it, uh, sometimes there's there's something missing. And I found with a wooden bit stock or like a wooden mm. brace, um, it's a very different thing from using, you know, like the the Stanley or whatever, the, right. the, the ratcheting. Ratcheting, yeah. Um, so it's a very different thing. And so I realized, hey, you know what? I, I've, you know, picked up a few different antique bit stocks, but those are they they receive a lot of torque and a lot of them have repairs and I thought right. I don't want to push these things too much, so I've actually made a couple of different wooden bit stocks and I read an article about it one time because I realized that this sends you down this path 
And I was researching Jonathan Fisher and his wooden bit stock and um, the actual, the pads themselves the, that the bits go into, these little wooden interchangeable yeah, they're they're, bits. they're, they're like, pads, but yeah. it's like the, it's the a precursor bit is in a wooden to the pad. quick change bit. Exactly. So these wooden pads had ferrules mm-hmm. on them so that they wouldn't split, presumably. But the ferrules were cast pewter. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, oh I got to get cast into casting pewter. pewter so I can make ferrules for my wooden bit stock so that I can make mm-hmm. furniture. Of course. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. So we have this block of pewter. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the shop. And I had never done that before. And I think that's just such a cool thing. I mean, it's a, same, it's a similar thing, thinking about connection with of Will Listack to Carpenters Without Borders, building a blacksmith shop with timbers here. And then in issue 10, um, I built a firewood box and I made, I was blacksmithing nails in that shop right. using that forge to be able to build a firewood box for my family. And it's, it's not that, you know, like, oh, this is the real way to do it, or this is like, everyone should go down authentic. these paths. Right. It's just, it's just showing that it never dries up. Right. If anybody thinks, oh, woodworking is kind of fun, but I've done that. Yeah. And I kind of ran out of stuff to do. I kind of built everything and that's it. Oh my goodness. You have not looked hard enough or you've, you've not been interested enough because there is, it never dries up. Yeah. It is bottomless. You can keep going backwards. And I, I think with, um, you know, with, with tool making, um, that is an avenue that any woodworker could explore. Yeah. You could go further back, you know, using hand tools and that pursuit and, and maximizing the skill there is, is awesome. But you know, it's like uh, like Darth Vader said to Luke when he saw that Luke had made his own lightsaber. He says, oh, yeah. "Now your skills are complete." <laughs> and so, so <clears throat> when yeah. we think about toolmaking, because um, I was remembering we went to Old Sturbridge Village and we were looking at their tool collection, and you and I were both super inspired by the the user made tools that they mm-hmm. have there. You know, they have this this storage place and these they're in they're in the warehouse, by yeah, the way. They're not yeah, on you display. put on the white gloves, you make a, yeah. a spe- spe- special arrangement. You go in there and the um the curators will pull out these these tools and we we took some pictures of them. There were some um bit stocks made out of crooked branches. Mm-hmm. And and you're like one of my bit stocks that I make. You, you know, when you were experimenting, you wanted to do one with a crooked branch. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing was, we saw quite a few really interesting buck saws made out of crooked branches. Mm-hmm. I was like, I want to try making one of those. And so we both had our our marching orders, right? We went and we we tried these things. You found some challenges with the crooked branch. Yeah, it's a bad idea. <laughs> well, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, someone made it work, maybe, maybe, or either that or the tool survives because they never used it. <laughs> um, and then I, um, I think my proudest moment as a woodworker came from that because mm. I made a turning saw out of a bent branch, and we were at um, Fine Woodworking Live, mm-hmm. and Al Breed came over and he was asking about my funky looking saw. And he wanted to use it. So the, the blade was a bandsaw blade, um, a very narrow uh, bandsaw blade. And he was asking about it. And uh, he he looked over at me and he started tightening the toggle. And I'm like, please don't break, please don't break, please don't break. And then he starts- <laughs> not, not for your sake, but just well, not for the tool's sake, but because everyone was looking and Al Breed is trying Mike's tools Al Breed to see cutting, how, how good it is. Cutting a nice S curve in a piece of pine with my tree branch. And <laughs> it held up beautifully. And Al's like, huh, that's pretty nice. It was like <laughs> the, this funny, funny thing. But yeah. I still, I, I hold on to that memory with mm. a great deal of pride. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we were really inspired to see that these, I mean, I presume that these user-made tools were, were made more of necessity than some, you know, desire to use more renewable materials or anything like that. Sure. Um, they, they saw a tree branch with said, a bend and said, that's strong. Yeah, that, I'm going to use that. That saw is almost done. Yeah. It just <laughs> needs a blade. It just needs a blade. Or that bit stock. Oh, look at that curve. That's great. I just need to chuck a bit on there and I'm good. Um, but 
those are places that we can we can go. Like and like I said, my saw blade on my turning saw was an old bandsaw blade. Now, saw making is a very old art that uh, is something a different direction that somebody could explore. Not just finding a blade and putting it in a handle you've made, but even going back further and starting to fashion your tools from the steel. Uh, you know, you could buy steel and then... You know, it's on our list. Yeah. you could Harvesting go bog iron. Further back. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Okay. So anyways. <laughs> yeah. Bog iron. Okay. So at the Eric Sloan Museum in Connecticut, he has several examples of tools made in New England um, by by makers, by farmers who made their tools out of bog iron, iron that they harvested. It, it exists as nodules under like the top layer of peat moss and these acidic bogs. Uh, and you can harvest these nodules. In fact, that's what the Vikings used for their fasteners. Once a generation, they'd go and harvest these um, iron nodules, these iron oxide nodules from bogs and use them to make metal fasteners. And obviously Vikings, they didn't use very many metal fasteners. They didn't need, you know, they weren't like framing houses with them, but they used them somewhat in their their shipbuilding. And so you could look at that, explore that realm, harvest iron that occurs naturally in the environment that is a natural renewable resource. It's it's made by bacteria, right? And you could look at smelting and you could look at um, making uh, making steel, you know, adding carbon, you know, do, doing some of that black magic that, you know, they, they always called that. And then uh, make fasteners, make tools out of that. Yeah. Uh, and it, so there's, there's that whole rabbit trail of like going deeper and deeper <clears throat> and further back in layers, taking one project and going back to the more, you know, origin source of it or whatever, right? right? But then the other what, the other path with that exploration is kind of spreading out further into all these different trades. Mm. So I just went down to visit my friend Don Williams in Virginia, and uh, Don is the uh, uh, now retired uh, senior furniture conservator at the Smithsonian Institution. Um, and so he spent a career looking at uh, pre-industrial furniture and, and some you know uh, more modern furniture, but he's really focused on. Um, I've been aware of his his interest in uh, pre-industrial uh, handcraft handcrafted furniture, um, and so he's been spending a lot of time. He um, worked on the translation for the Rubeau book through mm. Lost Art Press, and he's been really fascinated with a lot of that kind of stuff. And he's always uh, been a hero of mine, a, a craft hero, mm-hmm. in that I've. He's he's endlessly curious, and he'll describe his job at the Smithsonian as you know. They he said basically like they paid me to be endlessly curious. That mm. was my job was to be curious and to explore, and that really is the way he lives his whole life, uh, which sounds like a pretty cool job then, right? If, right. If, if your passion is your job, but so he basically, I was just down at his place again. And he's got this huge barn um, that he he blogs about it on donsbarn.com. And so he's got this huge timber frame barn that it is jammed, jammed with tools, jammed with tools. Wow. And the cool thing about it, again, I was just impressed that I feel relatively comfortable around old tools. I feel like I know what this is, or, oh, this is this time period, or I feel like I can identify or at least make a really good guess, or maybe there's just a variation on a form I'm familiar with. However... When I go to Don's, I feel like I have no idea what any of this stuff is. <laughs> yeah, and he starts showing me, um, you know, his foundry that he's setting up in his basement of his shop, and he's got all these um, uh, sand casting tools for, uh, or like uh, sand shaping tools for castings, and like he basically said, a lot of these trades do not exist. There is not one practitioner of a lot of these obscure trades he was mm. showing me about, but he's. He knows what these tools are. He has a collection of really great examples of these tools. And then he starts telling me, last time I used this, this one was really handy because of X, Y, Z. I'm thinking, there are not that many people on the planet that even know what that is, let alone have experience doing that trade. And so I was just, you know, at Dawn's, I was just so blown away that 
um, it's not just theoretical skill. He's not only a scholar. He is a scholar, mm. but he's not only a scholar. He's actually playing around with this stuff, making right. things. He's <clears throat> used a lot of this in his conservation work. Um, and I think that's just so inspiring to me. And I, I got a little window into, you know, what I'm going to be like at that stage. <laughs> that I don't, it's a sickness, man. Like, yeah. I don't think yeah. it's going to stop. Yeah. I think that, that there is no bottom. There is no end yeah. to this. And that if I feel like I, you know, I'm, uh, I feel satisfied with my, uh, the depth of, uh, research I've done into this topic. Great. Now shift. Yeah. Turning, gilding, carving, you know, yeah. whatever. All these things. Keep going. I, um, I think about when we, um, had Marshall Sheets write for us. Um, Marshall is a cooper. Speaking of tools that you look at and say, I have no idea what that is. Yeah. Uh, cooperage is one of those areas. There are there are just a few coopers left. Um, if so, I'll, I'll pose this question: uh, If you are an experienced woodworker, do you know how to build a barrel? Because barrels, a uh, hundred fifty years ago, were everywhere. They were like the cardboard box, right? Everything that was shipped, you know, uh, tools even were shipped in barrels filled with straw or sawdust. You know, there were barrels were everywhere and used for everything. And now obviously we've moved away from there, but the this art of cooperage, like I've never seen someone more adept on uh, a shaving horse and then with a hatchet than, than Marshall, mm -hmm. as he was demonstrating for us um, barrel making um, and uh, shaping these staves very quickly by eye, getting uh, the right angle on them just with a hatchet mm. was unreal. And, uh, so after, after Marshall wrote that for us, we went on to this little, this, a bit of a, a cooperage kick and tracking down tools. And Marshall was helpful in that, like what kind of tools to look for, because the tools are, are still out there. They haven't all gone away. Some of them are easier to find than others, but and you've probably seen them. You just didn't know what yeah, it was. Yeah, you didn't know what, what they is were. That oh, yeah, that's a that's a circular plane. looking. That's plane. a shiv. Is, yeah, exactly. Um, these these different things uh, that that are out there, and um, you know, with a, a bump in the right direction, with the right resources, or knowing the right person, if you've you've tracked down that person, that the Don Williams of of your life, or the the Marshall Sheets of of the neighborhood. Somebody who can point you in that direction, um, you can go endlessly and and figure out how to do these things, how to how to make barrels. Uh, barrels are pretty awesome. Yeah, and I think if you, I mean, I I've thought about you know I don't do a lot of heavily carved furniture, for example, or gilded furniture or anything. Um, but I think it's it's always refreshing to me to think about. Like I'd say, I used to say, yeah, I'm not really into carving so much. But over the years, I've been exposed to more and more carving in different yeah. traditions. And I'm like, I can just see. I got a little <clears throat> tiny taste of, I've done I've done some carving, in, especially in the conservation work I've done. But um, just that little bit I've done, I can see, oh, that was kind of fun. Oh, yeah. I want and then you that. appreciate carving and yep. different styles of carving. And you go, oh, wait. And then you do a little bit of chip carving on tool handles just mm -hmm. for fun. And you go, I wonder if I, I could. i got to do everything now. Yeah. So I'm going to chip carve all my if, planes. If, I mean, I really believe that if you feel like something is not interesting to you, it's because you haven't tried it enough. Mm -hmm. And you just take a little class, try it, dip your toes into it. And maybe you won't ultimately like it, but I bet you will. Mm -hmm. I bet you can find something, some fascinating path. Uh, I remember talking to a woodworker who uh, spent many years building lots of um, lots of period reproductions and stuff. And I asked him, I hadn't seen him for several years, and I asked him, so what are you working on the shop? You've been busy? And he said, nah, I gave up on furniture. I got bored. I did it all. I'm, I'm done. Whoa. I was like, oh. Bet he never made a really? Kubel Stoller. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so it's just, I think it's one of those things that, um, then I, you know, compare that experience, talking to that guy, comparing that to Don. Mm -hmm. And he tells me, you know, he's, his, I think his, he said his mother passed away at 104. So he's planning on working until he's about 104. And he's got a massive, massive list of stuff, multiple lifetimes, I would say, worth of projects he wants to do. Mm -hmm. And he is spending all day, every day up in his shop making stuff. That's yeah. how he's spending his retirement. And um, So yeah, for him, retirement is more of a financial situation than a life. He's not, 
oh hanging out on the beach. No, like, no, no, wasting his time. No, he has so much stuff he wants to pursue, and that's what's so inspiring to me. Um, so I think that you know we are dedicated to furniture making. We're focused on that. M and T is not going to become a bookbinder publication, yeah, or you know get into uh, become a weaving publication. But I think what's so cool is when you think about this focus on furniture making, then you start thinking, okay, well, what is what is involved with furniture making? Mm-hmm. And then you start realizing, oh, well, okay, I guess blacksmithing, of course, because you have fasteners and so you make nails and hardware, hinges and stuff. Okay, so mm-hmm. blacksmithing. So, you know, that's another whole trade that's good to be familiar with. And then you say, okay, well, I guess it would be handy to be able to make some of your own, own tools because a lot of woodworkers did make their own tools. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so tool making and you get into that stuff and then you... <clears throat> But you have this nice new blade you just forged, and you realize, well, I, I really got to protect this edge, so I got to make a, just a simple sheath, maybe yep. like a little leather, leather sheath, sheath or something. Yep. So then you start getting into leather working, and you get set up with a small leather working thing, and it just yep. keeps going. And, and you make, you know, let's say you make a reproduction like Swedish hanging cupboard, and you say, well, now I've got to paint that. Yeah. I, uh, you know, we had uh, Simeon von Donkelar um, write for us. He's an iconographer. And he makes his own pigments. He travels around Canada gathering these earth pigments from these different places where they occur. And he makes his own pigments and paints for, for painting these icons. And to me, that is so fascinating. Um, and he's harvesting the earth pigment to make his own paints to do that. So yeah. that, that's a whole thing, too, is making paint. Making paint. Yeah. And again, you need that for furniture. And uh, just these these different places you can go, um, and they are they all are are connected together. You're not taking a a useless tangent. You know, um, one of the things that I've always thought about is uh, something that we take for granted today that we always have is is like rope cordage, mm. right? You use it for everything. Um, you know, you you. You find that free sofa along the road, you got to tie it to your roof to get it home, right? Uh, so you need, I don't usually do yeah, that. Yeah, if you have bailing twine, you're all set. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, I, I don't recommend picking up the free sofas. At least make sure they, they don't stink, you know. <laughs> they haven't been sitting out in the rain for a few yeah, weeks. Yeah, that happens. But you need rope. And so um, last year I was, I decided to, to settle in and learn, um, you know, learn a bit more about cordage making and uh, harvesting natural materials. I actually grew flax last year. My harvest was pretty lame, but I did get some, and I did uh, do the re- like reverse double twist to make some, some flax cord. Mm-hmm. I got about four feet of flax cord out of my, my experiment, but um, also you know, just chasing down resources and learning about how the inner bark of cedar is this this um, common material for making cordage and different wild plants and how some are stronger and some are weaker and you can do this with this and that with that. And it's just so interesting to me because I felt like um, learning and and gaining way more knowledge and experience I had before, I realized just how much I don't know about that process, that that craft. Um, so I, I gained a little bit of useful information and if I need to, if I'm out in the woods with nothing, I could make some cordage. But I also gained this just new appreciation and and desire to learn more, to keep chasing that. And so when you look at something with, um, let's say it's an old sea chest with a nice becket on one end and a nice um, knotted piece of cord, you know, tied there with um, just really beautifully done. I can have a new appreciation for that that I mm-hmm. never had before um, just because of that little excursus I took into making cordage. Well, it, it actually reminds me when I was down at Don's, one of the things he said, we were talking about craftsmanship and different ideas of it and whatever. And he said, you know, a lot of people in his experience, there are a lot of woodworkers who um, who don't want to know, uh, what, what do you, how do you put it? He said, basically said something, people want to know how, but they don't want to learn. Right, and so he said, "They just just tell me the answer, so mm-hmm. I can just do it." But they don't want to pursue and try to explore. And so he was talking about um, how that uh, you're kind of cutting yourself off as a craftsperson when you have that mentality. 
because he was saying, you know, one way of thinking about craftsmanship is that it's materials science artistically applied. Mm. So that means you understand what the material is and what it does and its properties. And when you um, treat them in different ways, I'm thinking about, um, you know, different sorts of um, you know, redding, letting the um, the fibers uh, kind of rot a little bit and then yeah. being able to use them for different fibers to uh, weave together. And um, when you understand how materials work, then you have that knowledge, you know the, you know the stuff that you're working with then you're freed up to be able to artistically mm -hmm. manipulate it, shape it, and make it into something. If you don't have that materials knowledge, you're just shaping something that's going to fall apart or you don't know what right. you're doing. So it's sort of like this, this idea that it's not just spending time um, with your hands making something, but also learning about it, studying it, doing experiments and going, oh, yeah. that's why that does Failing. That. Or why does this keep yeah. happening? And then you read some about it. And so I think it's, you know, we're into furniture making um, and we, we are kind of seeing it as a, a broad umbrella that fits in a bunch of different things. But I actually think that a lot of trades are like that or a lot of fields are like that, that, um, you know, maybe not, maybe someone listening to this podcast, they're not a woodworker as a career, um, but they're in some other field. And I, I used to think, you know, when I was thinking, what career do I want to have? You know, I'm mm. in high school thinking about what I want to do with my life. And I thought, I want to have a career that is bottomless, mm -hmm. something that I'll never get bored at, something that there's always something further to pursue. Right. And so that's why I went down this path of woodworking. Um, but I think that as time has gone on and I've seen other people in their careers and stuff, I've realized that really actually, I think most any field could be bottomless mm -hmm. or is bottomless, but you have to have that sort of sense of um, uh, excitement and enthusiasm and interest. Because if you think about um, the different uh, perspectives to think about your field, let's say it's, I don't know, it's economics, mm -hmm. right? You, you do tax preparation, right? That's yeah. your job. Yeah. And you could say, I'm just here. I'm just doing my job. You know, I go home, whatever. Right. I learn the skills I have to do to complete the work. And then I go home and, that, and then I do something else. Yeah. I do what I want to do. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's think about economics. How much more could you learn about that? How much more could you think about um, the history of money and it's in society yep. how could you think about um a philosophical angle on the way people r relate to value and how they uh, value things around them yeah or how about or, like an, a historic examination of taxation and the way that people have responded to it yeah <laughs> so i mean it's you know you have these all these different facets of um or even like the technical side of um uh you know the production of uh cash or coins or something like whatever your your in your field is there's going to be a, a million there are going to be a million ways that you could uh, follow that and chase that down mm. so even doing tax preparation or working for the highway system or being a librarian or whatever yeah. your your passion is uh that too i think is bottomless mm -hmm. at least in the you know 80 years we have. Right, yeah. <laughs> There's no way that we're going to exhaust that and say, well, now I know everything in that field. Right. There's nothing more interesting for me. Yeah. I think I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yeah, I mean, so many people, um, if you, you know, you say you're in food service and you just want to learn how to uh, cook food from a certain tradition that maybe you're not familiar with, and and but you've always been interested and in, say... Japanese food, you want to make sushi, you know, even if your day job is, is, um, you know, as a line cook or something like that, you can be expanding those skills yeah. and, and deepening your interest in what you do. And that will, that'll come full circle to the point where when you're, you're working your job where you feel like maybe it's very often monotonous, you'll start to appreciate different aspects of it mm -hmm. and different things that you're doing. Um, and it'll help you to be better at it. Uh, and you'll you'll find enjoyment in being better. Um, well, it reminds me also of Phil Lowe, what he told me when I was interviewing him for issue one. Phil was saying, you know, we all start with 
shaker stuff and Queen Anne stuff. Right. Because we can understand that. That's what we, yeah, that's what we know. What he said is we all like that stuff as we get into woodworking because the lines are simple Mm. and we can wrap our minds around it. Mm -hmm. And as you get further into the craft, you start realizing, oh, wow, well, there's this uh, Rococo or Chippendale carving, and that's really great. And Philadelphia has some really high style carving. Or you can think about um, the mannerist, like the William and Mary um, veneering and um, the oyster shell veneering. And when we first get started, that seems so far from us that I would never be able to do that. And so I couldn't um, ever be interested in it. Right. But what Phil was saying is he was talking about that. Like over the years, I got sick of Queen Anne and Shaker stuff because, you know, you figure out the lines and you make the lines and yeah. it's kind of simple. Right. So then, great. Now get into carving or yeah. gilding. Go a little deeper. And part of that, I think, also he was talking about looking at Macintosh furniture and looking at um, some of the, the New York um, uh, like Federal Empire stuff that is just very extravagant, big carved eagles and gilded and just uh, the Lanue and some of these builders mm. that were just doing crazy stuff. He said when he started out, he was not interested at all in that because it was so big and yeah. you know wild. But then he started to appreciate the craftsmanship involved in it. Mm-hmm. And now his eye has changed. He actually really loved that stuff. Um, and so he was... At that time, he was telling me um, that, you know, basically, I took away from that, don't stop. Right. Don't say, oh, I'm just a shaker guy. Mm-hmm. I just like shaker stuff, or I just like Queen Anne stuff. Maybe that's what you'll end up just loving and not want to shift from. But uh, I would encourage anyone to not say, I don't like gilding, or right. I don't like carving or inlay. Yeah. No, go try it. Yeah. And, the, and look at and see all of the different... Um, uh, things that have been done over time with gilding and just dip your toes into it and you might find a way to incorporate that into your work that you find deep satisfaction uh, doing. So I think it's one of those things that um, I think it would be dangerous if we thought of our work as I'm just here. Yeah, I'm just doing what I'm doing. I don't have any bigger goals or any pursuits. I think if we think of our work as a craft instead mm-hmm. of a job, mm-hmm. we're going to be doing uh, doing ourselves a lot of service and others around us too. We want to take it uh, seriously to do really good, high-quality work. But then we realize when you enter into a craft, you're realizing I'm walking into a world that is so rich and so huge and there's so much to pursue as opposed to saying, sorry, ma'am, I just work here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just here for the paycheck or whatever. Right. Um, that's, that's not taking you anywhere. Good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I just, it's, it's great to be uh, involved with other people. You know, I think it's, we feed each other every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, in the morning, you know, back and forth, oh, and this and that, have you seen this? And did you see what so-and-so sent to us? And then we spend some time looking at furniture and, um, these things are just feeding and they're just, uh, cultivating a, a deeper appreciation and a deeper desire to be more involved. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's a good and, path to be on. In in uh, every every vocation, there is an element of creativity that's available. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't don't even necessarily bother looking for it, but it's there. It's there to be found, and um, and we just suggests that you um, think outside of the box. If you feel in your where you are now that that you are limited, that there's no avenue for creativity, there's no further explorations that can be had, there's nothing of interest there for you, um, we, we just want to push back on that a little and, and have you take a second look um, at what you're doing in, in your job and in your life and and just see if there are avenues where you can explore places that maybe there's a hidden fascination that you didn't realize was there. Mm-hmm. Um, it is always worth investigating. And even if there's not time on the clock, someone's going to pay you to go down that path mm. on the nights or weekends or whatever, yeah. dabble in it. Um, and I think it's good to not say, 
I have this job I don't like or this career I don't like. And therefore, as soon as I get out of here for the day, I'm going to go do something totally yeah. separate. Yeah. Because then you're, you're guaranteeing <clears throat> you're never going to like your job. Mm-hmm. But if you spend your free time finding out what's fascinating about your field, you know, you might start to have a deeper appreciation for the work that you're doing day in and day out. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, I think it's worth doing. I think it's worth uh, looking at life through... Um, a lens of craftsmanship, mm. you know, trying to think about um, how to explore this, how to uh, make it uh, just constantly uh, feeding further discovery. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comments or questions, you can always leave them below in the comments. So thanks for listening. Thank you.